0: Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G 2 Chris Dyer.
1: Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. My name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour here on the Talent Talk radio show. We have a great lineup of guests, and I am looking forward to hearing all of the guest insights throughout the year and all the wonderful things I have to say about HR and talent. So the Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent management, leadership development, and of course, company culture. In the business world, talent really has a couple different meanings. So the first is how it relates to success and how really talented individuals achieve success. And the second is how talent relates to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates for their companies. This show will explore those two different areas, along with how talented individuals impact a company's culture. The guests on Talent Talk include CEOs, HR executives, entrepreneurs, authors, coaches, consultants, really just a wide range of business leaders from all different types of industries. Generally what happens is I'm out at networking events and conferences and I have the privilege of meeting these inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to, uh, to allow you to listen on our dialogue and Well, hopefully learn some practical advice about how to cultivate uh, top talent, develop leaders, and manage your culture, and most importantly, impact your own career in a positive way. I want to thank uh, everyone who's tuning in live here every Tuesday. If you have a question uh, for any of my guests or any suggestions, you can submit them uh, via Twitter by tweeting at PeopleG2. Use that hashtag talent talk. And my producer, Mike, can feed me the best questions. We'll try to work them into the show if we can. Also, don't forget, you uh, can listen to Talent Talk via the podcast on iTunes or Android. Make sure you subscribe to the feed and join the other 120,000 subscribers we have as of this week on our podcast feed. We thank all of you who take the time to listen, uh, whether it's live or on the podcast. So let's go ahead and get today's show started. My uh, guests today are Russell Kloss. He's the Associate Director uh, at Accenture and also Lauren Miner, the COO of Decision Toolbox. Lauren will join me in the second half of the show, but let's go ahead and get to my first guest, uh, Russell Kloss. Russell, uh, thank you for joining me today on the Talent Talk radio show. You're most welcome. It's nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing there with uh, Accenture.
2: So um, as I think you just mentioned, I've only been with Accenture for about a month at this point. Um, I came over having run workforce planning for the Americas at Hewlett Packard just at the beginning of the year, so I'm still to some extent figuring out Accenture, but, um, you know, Accenture is obviously one of the world's largest management consulting companies. I sit in the strategy group, and my job, in essence, is to build workforce planning and talent management solutions for our customers. Um, That is everything from technology enablement to process design to, to a heavy focus on strategy you know and then in prior lives I've you know bounced back and forth a few times but I've been an internal guy and I have been a management consultant and uh you know well my resume reads primarily like high tech companies IBM Hewlett Packard uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers and Microsoft about 12 of those years were client facing and so it, it really is a cross industry um expertise if you will when we talk about talent management uh, obviously the concepts are the same regardless of what industry you're in but um they're applied slightly different if you're a professional service company than if you're a manufacturing company, as well as some of the um, cultural implications when we go global.
1: Sure, sure. And as you mentioned, kind of looking at your resume, I noticed you really have a lot of experience there in the realm of talent management. So maybe to start, let's see, maybe you could share a bit about, you know, each of your kind of past roles or previous companies where you helped really to form, you know, what your current understanding is now, the best way to manage the top talent around you.
2: Yeah, so what's a good way of putting this? If workforce planning is a strategy, talent management is the execution mechanism. And it's... um an awful big brush you know once upon a time people thought when you said talent management you just meant recruiting or talent acquisition whichever term you prefer but uh, that's maybe 10 to 15% of it maybe it's as much as 20 to 25 if you count internal mobility and how you move people around in your organization as part of that but it's really about employee development leadership development succession planning top talent programs I would pull compensation in there, but not in the way that a comp and Benny person would. i pull them in as a means of retention and a means of rewards and recognition. And, you know, part of that is about um, having level playing fields and giving people an opportunity to be recognized and rewarded for what they do rather than saying a uh, senior manager of accounting should make a uh, pay band two between X and Y dollars. Um, you know, I'm not going that far in the, in the weeds when I, when I look at those problems. Sure. Um, so to, to get to your core questions I spent three years you know prior to my current role at HP we called it labor demand signal management um, but really what it was about was cataloging you know so it, it, it's workforce planning in the near term or um, operational workforce planning if you want to think about it that way um, yeah different people use different vocabulary but uh, we spent the time focused on um, you know part of that is about, what competencies does my workforce have at what level, and how can I globalize that? So, while well, I may have X number of compensation bands and Y number of job titles: master, expert, novice, beginner. You know, and what does that mean? A beginner is a beginner is a beginner, regardless of what you actually do. If you're an accountant, if you're an IT guy, if you're a lawyer, it doesn't matter. A beginner is a beginner, and the same should should follow through. And so, you have a slew of. Um, technical competencies, let's call it, that um, apply to that role. And so let's catalog you by those because then how I utilize you can be determined by what skills you bring to the table. And that's not just the ones in your current job, but everything that makes you who you are. And then the harder part, especially for a service company, and you know, HP is both a product company and a service company, but the um, challenges on the service side um, is around, how do you forecast demand signals? So I say it's more challenging on the service side because if HP is making computer printers and demand goes up and they need to set up a second assembly line, it's not brain surgery. i got 15 guys on the line. I need 15 more that look just like them that can work the second shift. Um, but right. on the service side, I'm trying not to do this cycle of hire and layoff, hire and layoff that is unfortunately um, part of the the outsourcing model that we seem to have shifted to and I'm really trying to say these are the skill sets that are core to my business and here's what my demand signal looks like over the next six months, 18 months, 24 months and then based on my corporate strategy what I'm forecasting it out as we continue to grow over the next two or three years and you know how do I get my workforce to look like whatever those competencies are. So to, to oversimplify if we look at cloud services as an offering just because it's a popular buzzword Mm -hmm. That is, in essence, about 15 jobs, and they're the 15 you'd expect them to be, network engineers, database administrators, network security professionals, etc., and the competencies that go with that. And so if I am planning on growing that area, I can look at my current workforce and say, these are the skill sets I have now, these are the technologies I'm building my cloud in, these are the skill sets I'm going to need in three years based on my growth projections. Then I can fund recruiting budgets, I can fund employee development budgets, I can make decisions on contracting some of that work out or outsourcing some of that work and you know, in an ideal world then I can start to lay some workforce planning strategy on that and um, start to look at what work will be done where from a labor location strategy and some of those things. So I gave you the HP example but I have spent a big chunk of my time the last few years focused on how do you do that. Um, and then, you know, if I go back before those three years, it's been around. What does the process look like for actually executing that talent management strategy? So, um, without naming names, I worked for. A, you know, I did a client engagement um, for one of the larger insurance companies in the world, and it was all around succession planning and at the time i got there they had a very traditional pipeline approach to succession planning and it was organizational hierarchy based and so here's our pipelines for positions one to a hundred and here's the three people that are the successors for each and you know let's put it to paper how ready is jane how ready is jill how ready is bob and what do they need to get there and what breaks down fast when you do that is You have no visibility to someone could be on 15 different successor lists, and then if they leave the company, your entire pool collapses. You're not really looking at what are the critical positions, but just the hierarchical ones. And so, yes, the CEO is a critical position, but it's going to be filled by the board. You don't really have to succession plan around it. Unless someone has announced, so if Larry Ellison announces tomorrow he's finally retiring, then it's time for succession planning, right? But but normally those things are handled at the board level. And so even organizationally, you're looking at positions two through maybe 150 that might be critical. But in an insurance company, the vice president of operations isn't as critical as some of the underwriters um, and some of the people that are doing the actuarial work that allow you to price your product and approve your product and sell your product and to meet your regulatory requirements effectively. And so so there becomes this um, need to design process around what are our actual critical positions because those are the ones we really need to focus on from a succession planning point of view and from a recruiting point of view and from a you know leadership development point of view and it's not to say we don't care about the rest but the process should be scalable to the rest it's really designed to focus on the ones that are most critical to the company's
1: success. Does well, that make it really feels like, you know, Uh, you know talent management is such a you know big part of the overall strategic goals of the organization that you're kind of talking about are are there real specific things though that you might identify that you know become more effective as that you know talent management portion of a company's process becomes stronger i mean other what are the real rewards kind of tangible things that they a company may see at that level
2: Yeah, so so we can talk about traditional HR metrics, and we can even talk about some of the things you can do, predictive modeling around from an HR metrics point of view, um, and there are tangibly measurable things there. So if I know my turnover is historically 8.4%, if I lay the right predictive models and I have the right talent management processes, I may not be able to predict who, but I can pretty accurately predict where and to some degree when. I'm going to have turnover and then start to uh, adjust my um, recruiting activities accordingly. But the real benefit of talent management is about retaining top talent, driving to right place, right time, right cost, with the right skill set. Um, and that has a measurable result from an employee satisfaction point of view in engagement, in um, employee happiness and in retention and then when you have engaged employees that are happy it tends to not always it's not a direct correlation but it's a call it 70 percent direct correlation if your employees are happy and dedicated and engaged you're going to drive higher customer results and that measures in sales it measures in customer satisfaction surveys it measures in repeat customers etc so um I have a Kindle. If you have a Kindle and you have a problem and you call Amazon customer service, you get a very happy employee most of the time that will take the time to work you through it. And then because they're happy and took the time to work me through it and can relate to what I'm doing, I'm happy to have my Kindle, and so I keep buying things for it. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and so, yeah. so you know, it, it's kind of a vicious cycle. And there's other factors that lead to increases in sales, obviously, and market conditions and all these things that are beyond the realm of human resources. But human resources functioning correctly make sure that the employees touching the customer are touching them effectively, efficiently, and at the best of their abilities.
1: Yeah, and that, that seems so important for organizations to really focus on. And, you know, I noticed you also you talked about a little bit, but you have a really a, a large kind of grasp on really the challenges from a global HR standpoint as well. And I think one of the most fascinating uh, parts of that from from your own resume is the work that you've done in China. Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about that experience and how, you know, kind of bringing those cultures of East and West from a talent management standpoint really uh, came to be and, and, you know, maybe what some of your takeaways were from that uh, experience.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, I spent six months in China on a short term expat assignment. And the work was, again, in addition to the fact it gave me some hands-on experience to what's like to actually be an expat, which is very different than the theoretical design that HR people deal with sometimes, mm-hmm. um, the work itself was focused on a Chinese-based company that was international in scope and that was looking to expand into Western markets. And so that becomes a leadership challenge. And so I went over to build what I'm going to call an integrated leadership development framework, but it was around... How do you expand from a people point of view? What roles as you move into new countries do you put expats in, and for how long? Um, because if you, you know, this is, this is HR 101 almost, but um, if the top two positions in a, the U.S. subsidiary are held by Chinese nationals, and they're always held by Chinese nationals, then you're going to run into people that, as they get to the manager and senior manager level, have hit an artificial career plateau. You've created a glass ceiling, and so then they go looking to your competitors for further opportunities to grow. Um, and that costs you customers. It costs you your best employees and, you know, whatever effect on morale it has. Um, so that's part of the challenge. And then there's also a very big big difference culturally between Eastern management philosophies and Western management philosophies. And I don't say it with any disrespect, there's, there's benefits to both, but in a Western civilization like the United States, like the UK, like Germany, um, even in Latin America, um, if I have a better idea or I think there is a more effective way of doing something, regardless of what that something is... I feel empowered almost to, you know, in most cases to question my boss and to say, hey, you know, I'm happy to do what you want, but I think we can be more effective this way. I think we can save some money, some time, whatever it is. And the answer may come back, no, we're going to do it my way, but at least I was heard. Um, in an Eastern management philosophy, there is a deference to experience, age, position, seniority, all of those things. And it's not unique to China. Most of the Asian cultures have the same deference. But if you don't question your boss and it just becomes, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, that may work very well in Asia. It does not work very well for your managing of your workforces when you start dealing with local nationals in other countries. And so the work was around... How do you give the people that are going to be the expats the right cultural experiences and the right cross-training? Because it's not that you abandon your Eastern management philosophy that got you there, but you apply some Western techniques when you get into Western countries. Um, How do you figure out who those people are that are going to be adept at that? Because it's more than just a top talent program. Now you're starting to get into concepts of role-based assessment and who are the right people for what role based on... Factors beyond performance, so potential, um, personality, employee development factors, if it's a rotational assignment, all of those kind of things. What trainings can you give versus what has to be done on the job? Um, And then, you know, that's without even getting into the language issues. Mm -hmm. So um, it it was building both the learning modules and the process framework for how do you make those decisions. And who do you send over and how do you manage their success? And do you do it short-term or do you do it long-term? And there is no one answer to that. So you design a robust process that can flex both to the individual and to the reality of a given country or even a given city. So if you expand into the United States, and we are the largest and most competitive market for just about everything in the world, Your entry point may be Dallas, and the person you put there may be wildly successful, but if your next entry point is New York, you're going to need a slightly different personality. Um, People that are successful in the South versus the West versus the East, there's a nuance in personality, I guess is a good way of putting it, or attitude if you prefer that term, but you can manage talent to that, Um, and it's not that you're punishing anyone, it's that you're aligning talent to market conditions. and. There isn't a nice fancy term for that, but that's part of talent optimization, deployment, um, ex- execution, right?
1: Yeah, yeah so uh, local you know, know-how said, has a big impact on overall yeah, success. Yeah, and, and so
2: when you move into a country, that's why people you're people want to work with people who they feel like, expertise. think
1: like them or talk like them, and those can be important factors. So, um, yeah, so I spent those six
2: months building process around that, and... That touches recruitment, but mostly it touches employee development and um, workforce optimization and labor scheduling to some degree. And these are all talent management activities,
1: right? So let's fast forward now to the present, and you're at uh, Accenture. And I know you've only been there about a month. So what's been sort of your first reaction to the culture now that you're you're in it, and it's not you know kind of being proposed to you from an applicant standpoint, but you're actually living it and breathing it, where do you kind of feel like the, the culture is really sitting and is that, you know, kind of what you anticipated and, uh, or there are there maybe some other you know, great things going on there that you didn't even know about?
2: Yeah, so I, I'm sure there are great things going on here that I still don't know about. Um, part of what management consulting companies true, and this is not just uh, true of Accenture, it's true of Deloitte and it's true of IBM and it's true of Mercer and all the rest of them. They're thought leaders. They put people out there that are doing research and saying, where is the bleeding edge? Not because the bleeding edge applies to every situation or every client, but because by looking for it, you figure out better ways to apply cross industry. Um, and, you know, I, I come in with a consulting background that's a little bit different than coming in, you know, right out of graduate school or right out of undergrad and what does a consultant do? But I will say, 24 years of work experience, a hop job, I, was, I don't know, five times in that 24 years. Um, and I've certainly helped design talent acquisition and onboarding processes, you know, dozens of times. And um, I'm not going to say it works perfect in the background because I don't know how manual it is and how automated it is. But I will say it is the best onboarding process I've ever experienced or seen. Um, it was smooth. It was you know constant touch points, but not too much that it was annoying. It was uh, some of it was personal, some of it was electronic, it was just, is there anything we can do for you? Hey, if you get this stuff set up beforehand, it'll make your first days go smooth. Here's some things that are external that we can let you read that'll help you start getting up to speed. I went through a three-day orientation. I hit the ground running the following Monday. Um, and that's not to say I had gotten through all those things you have to get through in big companies, sexual harassment training and all the rest of it. But um. I had a roadmap at the end of those three days. Um, And I knew how to get to everything, and everything worked, and I had done all the HR things you have to do, I-9 forms and all that. And So I like companies that eat their own bacon. Um, In Accenture, it's not perfect, nowhere is, but it seems to eat its own bacon. The things they say they can do for other people, they try their best to do for themselves as well.
1: Uh, That's that's great great to hear. You know, one of our favorite questions to ask uh, our guests, and I'm, I'm going to guess that maybe you're going to have a pretty good answer for this, being as articulate as you are and the amount of experiences you've had. Is, you know, is there a particular book that you you know are reading now or maybe you've read recently that you might uh, suggest to our listeners that they might want to check out?
2: Yeah, I'm actually... You
1: know, <laughs> I'll give you a true essential story. I'm actually
2: working through something called The Purpose Principles, which is written by a guy named Jake Ducey. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. Do you see why? He's... Um, a motivational speaker of sorts, but he's a millennial. And I am not a millennial. I am a Generation Xer. And so, you know, I have the same challenges in the workforce that that many do dealing with with the millennial generation. And, you know, it's nice to see people that, I don't know, he's probably 24, 25 years old and he's already a, you know, multi-published, multi-book best-selling author. Um, But Ascension on Martin Luther King Day does a day of service. So it's a, it's, it's a, Day of good instead of a day off kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and they brought him into the local. I'm in the Washington D.C. area. They broke him in, brought him in as one of five or six speakers, and we spent a half day. You know, you could glorify it as corporate rah rah, but it was really here's a bunch of people that believe in. You know, giving something back to the community and what the company's doing and the company, you know, to give something back. And the center does a lot of things and I'm not trying to make it into a commercial for my employer. But, um, they're not the only ones. There's a lot of companies that have taken that Martin Luther King Day and said, we give something back. And I was fascinated by the, you know, whatever it was, 15 minute presentation he gave to us about, um, I'm more interested in changing the world than anything else. That then the, the footprint I leave behind let the place be a better place. Um, And, you know, I've kind of, through the the 12 or 13 years I did management consulting, including my current role, I judge my success by, did I solve the business problem, and did I leave the client better than when I got there? And so this is just taking that a step further and saying, if you have all these wonderful talent management skills, apply them at work, by all means, because that's why you're good at what you do, but... Maybe, in that five or ten percent of your time that you give something back either to the profession or you give something back to the world itself, apply some of them there. So, if you're you know really good at labor scheduling, stick your head in goodwill and see if there's something you can do to help them figure out how many people they should have in the store on a given day. You know, it could be as simple as that. You don't have to go dig a well in Africa to make the world a better place, right? right Um and so so it's a little bit of that. So I'm working through that at the moment. Um, And I have sitting on my dresser, The Last Tom Clancy, although it's the first one he didn't write, obviously, because it came out after, you know, not only did it come out after he died, but the concept wasn't even on paper until after he died. Um, We'll work through that one next. I have. um, I tend to read a lot more magazines and trade publications than I do books.
1: Yeah, and that's pretty typical. We have a lot of guests that say they read a lot of those types of things, but I think that book you mentioned sounds really interesting, and they want to check it out. We've got about thirty seconds here, so you know, in in that short amount of time, what might you, how would you summarize what you talked about today? What were some of the, I think, the big takeaways that someone listening should have heard? Uh, yeah, I'm going to
2: walk away with the, the project management 101 soundbite here and say, plan the work, work the plan. Everyone has a process for everything, including all of your talent management activities. It's either by design or default, but if you aren't planning it and you aren't managing it. You're probably not doing it optimally.
1: Uh, that's great advice uh, for anybody who's listening. And, uh, of course, if, if they're interested in learning more about you or learning more about your company, what's the best way for someone to reach out to you? Um, you know, I'll give two ways. You can either ping me on Twitter. It's at RussMK, two S's.
2: Um, or, you know, you can drop me an email or look me up on LinkedIn. Either way, but Russell with two S's and two L's. And my last name is K-L-O-S-K. And there's not that many with that one. I'm fairly easy to find. <laughs>
1: And great, great. Well, I uh, really appreciate you being our guest today. it uh, been a lot of great information. And well, there was so much we didn't even get to half the questions we had laid out. So maybe we'll have you come back here at some point, and uh, we can pick up uh, on the conversation. And we'd love to learn more about what you're learning over there at Accenture and all the great things that you're doing. I would be happy to, and thank you for having me. All right, Russell, thank you for joining me today. Up next is Lauren Miner after this quick commercial break.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret
1: Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. As a reminder, if you have questions uh, for my second guest here, you can tweet them by uh, sending it to atpeopleg2. Use that hashtag #TalentTalk, and we can uh, try to stump her or get her a good question here today. Don't forget, you can also uh, subscribe to the podcast by going onto your iPhone or tablet, whatever you'll be doing, and go to the podcast app, look up Talent Talk, and subscribe to have all the great shows sent to you uh, each week can also visit com and and peruse through all the different shows and, and find the one that interests you most. My next guest is Lauren Miner. She's the COO at Decision Toolbox. Uh, we've talked about Decision Toolbox a few times. They're one of our favorite companies because we love the service they provide and how they provide it. So, Lauren, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. So, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, of course, your company, Decision Toolbox.
3: Absolutely. So... Um My background is actually in finance, um, with the risk of telling my age. I began my career many, many moons ago at Deloitte Haskins & Sells, (laughs) now Deloitte & Touche, of course. And Mm -hmm. um, Decision Toolbox, 15 years ago now, hired me as their chief financial officer. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was promoted about five years into my engagement into the role of Chief chief operating officer and um, really never relinquished my role as CFO. So I I, I sort of wear both hats, I would say. Um, So, yes, I've been with DT about 15 years this summer. And Decision Toolbox um, is essentially a technology and process-based recruitment department for hire, Um, We don't just provide candidates to our clients, but we provide the full structure, the technology and the recruitment processes, as well as, of course, the candidates uh, that our clients need to fill all of their positions across the board. For some clients, we are all things recruitment. For other clients, they use us in specialty areas, maybe to grow their sales and marketing departments or strictly for their accounting and finance, or uh, we have one client who uses us for all of their new retail store openings, so we're doing a lot of non-exempt positions for them, cashiers and stockers and key holders, Um, but uh, what's nice is that for them, essentially, we become the recruitment department for hire, so unlike... Contract recruiters or an employed recruitment structure that they would have to um, invest in. Uh, we are variable to them. We're there when they need us, and and gone when they don't.
1: Well, and that uh, is a great. I think you've really kind of described that in a way that it you know people can understand. I think a recruiting company you kind of have one mindset, but the way in which DT does it, we've used your company. Um, we have that kind of firsthand knowledge the way the whole technology plays into that is really a special part of it. But we won't talk about the technology today. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, your role. So as a COO, who's maybe also wearing that CFO hat still, what do you see as kind of your biggest challenges right now?
3: That's a really good question because what constitutes my biggest challenge, or I should say our biggest challenge, probably changes weekly. We're such a dynamic, fluent organization growing very, very rapidly. Um, But I would say today our biggest initiative, which is uh, an answer, I guess, to our biggest challenge, is to become more of what we have coined a performance-driven workforce. DT is extremely metrics and data-driven, and we have to be because we are a virtual company, 100% virtual. All of our 75 employees work from home offices. So we hold our recruiters and our team members accountable For delivering on various, you know, key performance metrics, Um, our recruiters are measured on standards such as days to fill and hire ratio and hiring manager satisfaction. And our systems have been built to allow us to extract a ton of numbers and performance indicators. But what we need to be better at as a company is understanding those numbers. And being able to analyze patterns, and what we are really trying to do as a company and as a team is be able to fix things things upstream before they get downstream. Mm-hmm. So PBW or performance driven driven workforces is not it's not about outcomes; it's about process. So um, our challenge is in becoming more solution oriented and allowing the numbers to speak to us in a more meaningful way and to speak to our employees in a way that they can micromanage themselves so that we don't have to micromanage. Our philosophy is that we should micro-train but macro-manage. So we are deep involved in this PDW initiative and um, it's challenging. We have a lot of moving parts and it's going um, to be a fun initiative, but it's, it's going to take a lot of uh, time and strategic thinking.
1: Well, and, and with everything that goes into that, if, if you're able to kind of really come up with a, a great blueprint to that process and really make it work, it sounds like another book uh, idea right there, maybe for <laughs> you or for Kim or somebody. Um I'm sure companies will love to know the secrets that you know, you're figuring out right now to make that a reality because it sounds like quite a challenge. Um, you know, speaking of Kim Shepard, who was the, our very first guest ever um, when we started the Talent Talk radio show, And uh, and your boss, Uh, I know she's she's kind of described you as a master of operations, finance, and business development, all while you know being an inspiring leader. So that's quite a compliment, and I'm sure that it's something that really kind of really shadowly shows your how you're successful. So how do you maybe what would you attribute your success to to this point? You know, some people talk about their experiences when they're young. Some talk about their education. Know, how would you kind of you know, describe that to us about why you've been successful to this point, especially in your role there at DT?
3: Well, it's my charm, Chris, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, um, no, more seriously. It, um, I have to probably attribute my success to my outside business knowledge. I mean, I am fortunate enough to have an incredible background and training as an accounting CPA. Um, That experience uh, is so valuable. It provides you with a keen ability to be um, attentive to details while also being able to see the big picture. Um, So, you know, I believe that I can assess the health of any business regardless of industry. And Actually, the fact that I came to DT knowing nothing about recruitment, literally, have never recruited a day in my life, was and probably is even more valuable to Decision Toolbox because I'm able to bring a different perspective to the table. I believe that you know my business acumen is fungible amongst any industry. And um, I think just being able to, as I said, assess, Uh, the health of DT and really help build high-level efficiencies and processes while really maintaining the level of detail that you need to maintain in a business that's so highly transactional as recruitment. And I might add, while adding the customer service piece to it, because one of my favorite things, honestly, is working with our clients and helping them understand Truly, what the recruitment needs are, and being able to build solutions, customized solutions uh, for them. Um, you know, having, having that ability to, to not just understand the details and, and be a number cruncher, but actually have some personality does help. So, I think it's a combination of all of those things.
1: Yeah, and what I really heard was kind of what you were talking about earlier at the beginning of that was that kind of financial um, competency. And we see so often that just people in general don't have that. CEOs, entrepreneurs don't have that. I know when I went through, you know, I was in college. I hated my accounting classes, hated them. But yet, that in many many ways, I spend so much of my time and my day in that realm of financials, and and now I've had to, you know, really dive into that and and learn to to enjoy it and love it, but. At the time, when I was going through school, it really wasn't something that I, I gravitated to. I was more, you know, let's talk about big ideas, let's talk about strategy, let's not talk about, you know, these numbers, you know, on the spreadsheet that are going to really help me get to there. Do you think that that is a problem in general for people in business? And, 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 if, and if you agree with that, do you, do you maybe see a, a path that we should be taking to kind of help people bridge that gap in their financial competency?
3: I think that it's really important to have somebody inside the organization that has that financial competency. You don't necessarily have to have it. In our situation, I I do wear a lot of hats. Um, Our CEO, Kim Shepard, who is our fearless leader um, and would probably not be upset with me by saying this because I think admittedly would say that she doesn't have that financial competency. And so... Her strength is, is she is the face of DT. We call her our hood ornament. Mm-hmm. If we're going to use a car analogy here. She uh, reaches a large network of prospects through her networking and her public speaking. Um, and this forces her to be, you know, doing what she does best, which is, is, is being strategic and very forward thinking and, and and out quite a bit. So, using the same car analogy, I believe that I am her rearview mirror, and she relies on me um, to be both tactical, financial, and strategic. I mean, she'll call me her financial cop, um, and I think that just having somebody who is there to take care of the baby while mom and dad are out mm-hmm. is what's valuable. And um, and I and I think it's very comforting to 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 Kim. Um, and and somebody who can who can also speak in layman's terms. So I think what what is extremely frustrating is to have somebody who has the financial competency but cannot uh, manage that information um, upward and cannot speak um, uh, at a level that somebody who doesn't have that competency really understands. So I think that's that's also a, a very critical factor that should should be mentioned,
1: so would that be something that you look for when you're bringing on direct reports to kind of have that competency or are there other things as well that they need to have uh, to be a success in your company?
3: You know, Chris, I just hire smart um, my direct reports are always smarter than I am and, and 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 I and I can smell smart I think um. <laughs> Uh, I think maybe that's just from, from my 15 years in talent acquisition, I can walk into a coffee shop and and, and know if my waitress is, is on it or not in, in moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but no matter how good an employee is, they can't be good at everything. So I think, um, you know, what we try to do is rather than focus on areas of weakness as areas of improvement, um, which I think is sort of typical in corporate America, we to flip the approach and try to focus on and leverage talents when we're, you know, looking for people and when we're creating job responsibilities around open positions. And we really try to proactively set our – I try to proactively set my direct reports up for success. I have actually created roles in Decision Toolbox that did not exist because I believed one of my direct reports had the skills and the talents that would really just bring so much value to that role. So, you know, I think that that's really important. I think that I hope that my direct reports view me as a mentor, not a boss, and, um, you know, and that they feel smart and that together we, we, we become strategic in the way we handle things.
1: Yeah. Well, I would guess if you asked them that, they would probably say yes because I know DT does a great job of really – engaging their staff Uh, you have to with having a virtual environment like we have um you have to really have a huge level of engagement so maybe you could talk about how crucial you think that component is within your company and what are some of the things that you're doing to make sure your staff are engaged
3: well i think engagement is crucial i think without it a company could not succeed so that's pretty crucial um you know for us employee engagement you know i'll just with culture, and and, and culture has a, a first order of importance at DT. We believe, you know, as a virtual workplace um, that uh, it's all about culture. As a matter of fact, um, we, we have, every year, we have uh, an all-staff strategic retreat where we bring all employees, all 73 of us, together for two days. And not last year, but the year before, we um, did an exercise where we asked each employee to think about and create their personal why statements because I think part of culture or uh, important part of culture is, is putting the why first. And um, it was a really, really great exercise and I would recommend it highly. Um, you know, again, as a virtual workplace, Uh, We have had to make the virtual workplace work. And I think we've become a better company as a result because we do focus so much on culture. Mm -hmm. And um, our employees truly understand what work-life balance is all about because we, we provide it. But we also have to be structured in a way that allows them, while they're taking care of their own personal lives, to be held very accountable to productivity standards, and working from home can be very lonely. So we also have to work hard to provide what we call sticky factors to the team, which is all part of our culture. They cannot feel like they live on an island. So I think all of that results in a employment engagement that um, revolves around um, um, structured communication channels and lots of them, consistent love fests where we're constantly, you know, loving on each other and, and giving atta boys and atta girls across, you know, across the field, and really strong mentoring programs.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. And, and um, yeah, go ahead. I
1: was going to say you mentioned work life balance, and so I want to maybe try to get your perspective on. Are there some things that DT is doing to try to help their staff with that? Because, you know, I mentioned my company is virtual as well. And although I feel like in many ways we do have more of a work-life balance, there are times, though, when it feels like those lines become blurred. And so you can end up, you know, sitting down and deciding to do a little extra work from 9 to 10 o'clock at night, or, you know, you can do these different things. But yet, at the same time, you know, myself included in the staff has that flexibility of they need to go pick up their kid for 20 minutes, you know, in the middle of the day on a Tuesday, whereas in a traditional office setting that may be a problem. So are there things that you do to try to help define what that balance means, you know, tactically, or is this more of a, you know, over overarching idea that you hope that they figure out on their own?
3: Well, I think I will uh, sort of point back to this concept of performance-driven workforces because we hold – Well, first of all, our our team members, I think, feel like they have a very autonomous structure. We do not require that our team get permission, as an example, when they need to be out to pick up a child from school or to take a child to a doctor's appointment. They simply inform us that they're going to be gone and make sure that their um, work is covered. Um, that's an example. So with a performance-driven workforce, uh, people are held accountable for their performance. They're rewarded for their performance, um, and they feel invested in the performance of the company. So I think that that makes a huge difference. They can work when they want how they want, as long as they're contributing to the performance of the company in a way that they are expected to be contributing. And I think when you create that kind of performance-driven workforce, it allows work-life balance to work.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Well, it's certainly, um, it can always be a challenge. It's a challenge for, for companies in general, and then I think virtual companies maybe, you know, it's another layer. But one um, well, of yeah, the things that I uh, was we kind of talking about is a lot of hiring here. So the question I wanted to make sure we asked you was, if you think back over your career, uh, have you ever had that experience where you thought, you know, you're bringing on this great team member who seems like they fit, great culture, you, seem, you know, they were smart. And as you kind of mentioned, you, you can tell that right away. But after you brought them in, you realized maybe you'd made a mistake. Maybe you can kind of talk about what that process was or what you learned from that.
3: Sure. Um, it happens, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, of course, the key tactic is to always hire well from the beginning, but um, anyone with talent acquisition and recruitment experience knows how deceptively simple that sounds. Right. <laughs> um, hire, uh, how to hire well, uh, you know, has has been the topic of a million books. But I guess I would say the key is to know, when that has not happened as quickly as you possibly can and take action as quickly as you possibly can to make changes, you know, whether or not that's, you know, putting them on a performance imp- improvement plan or, you know, cutting the cord very quickly. Um, I think recognizing when an employee is not uh, the right fit is probably almost more difficult sometimes than hiring the right person
1: well and what you're saying essentially you know fail fast if if you realize that it's a problem you need to hurry up and and find a way out from that situation instead of prolonging it and making it harder for everybody or you know bringing greater risk to your company you mentioned that there's a lot of books on that topic so i'm wondering is there a particular book that you're reading right now you might share with us
3: (laughs) I'd love to tell you that I'm deep into some amazing you know philosophical study of business, but <laughs> I'm not that impressive. Um, I actually have read and do recommend uh, a a business book called Predictable Revenue uh, by Aaron Ross that I did finish a month or so ago, um, which is a very was a very inspiring sales management tool for both myself and um the members of our leadership team but uh Right now, Chris, I'm just reading a great nonfiction that was recommended by my mom <laughs> called Room. It's by Emma Donahue and it's, it, it is a great book. <laughs> but,
1: well, everyone needs those as well. I mean, there's nothing wrong yeah. with, oh. with a little fiction in their lives. Um, we have a yeah. lot of leaders yeah. that come on this show that say that's all they ever read because they need the escape. But it's, uh, I think, Predictable Revenue, and then Room sound like great uh, suggestions for our listeners. Um, before we go real quick, how would you, what would you summarize or maybe some of the better takeaways? If someone was listening to this, what, what should they have picked up from you as far as, you know, kind of concrete advice or, you know, the bullet points of what you talked about today?
3: Oh boy. Well, I would say, you know, there's nothing black and white about great leadership. I mean, every industry is so different. Every company has such different dynamics and cultures, um, it's hard to create standards sometimes when it comes to, to leadership. But, I, I, you know, I will say across the board, providing mentorship, providing uh, great communication channels, and um, uh, implementing some sort of a performance-driven workforce where your people really, you know, feel like they are, Rewarded rewarded and and held accountable for for both process and outcomes, Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, the world can become your oyster.
1: Lauren, I really appreciate you being on the show today. You shared with us some really great stuff, and I'm sure our listeners really appreciate it. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about Lauren, you can can find her on LinkedIn or you can go to uh, dtoolbox.com. And uh, just thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank
3: you, Chris. I
1: enjoyed it. That's about all the time we have. Thank you again to my special guests, uh, Russell Fosk and Lauren Miner uh, here on Talent Talk. Tune in uh, next week, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, that is. My guests uh, for the entire hour will be uh, Linda Brenner. She's a founder and managing partner of Design on Talent. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.
0: You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.